This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. In one of his final addresses to the Jewish nation, Moses turns to the people and says, You have failed to study the events of the world. Zechor Yimosalam, remember the days of the history. Binushnos Dorvador, study generation by generation. Shalavicha Vegetcha, ask your father and he'll tell you. Zekenecha Vyomrulach, ask your elders and they'll explain to you. Rashi commentary explains that what Moses is saying to the Jewish people is if you would like to see God's active involvement in the world, study history, study the events of the world, study things as they unfold and you'll see God clearly in the world. History is a description of God's running of the world. And this Rashi is a bit difficult to understand, because typically if you look back on Jewish history, one might ask many questions. Where was God? How could God allow things to happen? The Jewish people have not had it very, very well the past few thousand years. Yet Rashi seems to be saying the exact opposite. Not only shouldn't it bring you to a question, if you study history, if you step back, you'll see God's hand actively involved. And the question is, what does Rashi mean? And I'd like to spend some time now to see if we could better understand, in fact, what this Rashi is telling us, what in fact this verse in the Bible means. And let me begin with the following. Adolf Hitler began his rise to power in the beer halls in Munich. He would speak... <clears throat> In the small groups, this was the late 1920s, post-World War I Germany. And at these small groups of people, he would get up and start ranting and raving on and on and on. The problem with Germany is the Jews. It's the fatherland of the Jews, and I choose the fatherland. Hour-long tirades. Anyway, the story is told, and at one such meeting, Hitler goes on through his entire rant, and after a full hour of virile anti-Semitism, the crowd gets up to its feet, clapping, adoring praise. And Hitler notices that in the back of the room is an old man, obviously Jewish, who's clapping along with everyone else. When the crowd sort of shuffled out, Hitler made his way over to this old man and said to him, don't you think I'm serious when I said I intend to rid Germany of the Jews? Don't you think I mean what I say? And as the story goes, the old man turns to Hitler and says, Oh, I assume that you were serious. But you have to remember, we're an old people. Thousands of years ago, there was a King Pharaoh. He tried to enslave our people. When God saved us from him, what a beautiful holiday. Holiday of Passover. Family joins together. Centuries later, there was a king, Achishverosh and Homan. They tried to annihilate the Jews. When God saved us from them, we have now the beautiful holiday of Purim, celebration of that. Later came the Greek Syrians. And when God saved us from them, the beautiful holiday of Hanukkah. But you, Hitler, the old man said, you hate us more than all of them. And when God saves us from you, what a holiday there'll be, what a celebration. There is no celebration to celebrate God saving us from the Holocaust. No family gatherings, no meals. No festive times, but the reality is that despite the Nazis' regime's all-out effort 
to annihilate this nation, to put an end to this people, we're still here. We're still here to talk about it. We're still here to contemplate its meaning. We're still here to discuss it and teach it generation to generation. And the reality is that we are an old people, and we've been around for quite a while, centuries and centuries of exiles. But it's been a very rocky, rough road. From the destruction of the temple some almost 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> we've lived through crusades, Spanish inquisitions, blood libels, pogroms, persecution, mass murders, gassings. If there was ever a method that one man discovered to torture another man, no, it was used on the Jews. If there was ever diabolical means of one man to kill another man, know that it was well used on the Jews. We were stabbed, shot, hung, executed, clubbed, burned, gassed, and beaten to death. There's no shortage of creativity when it comes to killing Jews. And yet, astonishingly, we're still here, as vibrant, as strong as ever. And one of the ultimate ironies that history has to offer, that is that after century and century, after repeated attempts to destroy the Jewish people, we are still here. And we still celebrate a Passover because God redeemed us from Egypt. We still have a Purim because God saved us from the Persian dynasty. And we still celebrate Hanukkah because God saved us from the Greek Syrians. And even after the Holocaust, the single most systematic organized attempt in the course of history to destroy a people, we're still here today. But there's a bit of irony in that because... The question one should ask is, but what happened to our enemies? Where are those powerful, mighty dynasties who stood over us? The Egyptian Empire, the might of its day, where are they? What about the Romans, the Persians, the Babylonians? Of all the great empires of yesteryear, there's only one nation that remains unchanged, still alive, and that's the Jewish people. And strange as it sounds, every nation had its moment of glory. And in its power, it rose up and it too tried to kill the Jews. And then it faded from history and the Jew continues. That lone sheep surrounded by 70 wolves and all the wolves are gone and that sheep is still around. And if you would like to see the hand of God, all you need to do is study Jewish history. And study the fact that we're taken from exile to exile. And study the fact that every nation in which we land rises against us, either annihilates us or kicks us out. And they, the powerful, mighty empires, are no longer to be heard from, and we alone are still around. And if you'd like to see the hand of God, all you need do is study Jewish history. And you see God protecting his people, shepherding them, and guiding them from shore to shore. There are words we say every Passover in the Agadah, in every generation they stand over us to kill us. It's as true today as it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. It's a part of history. And yet they are no longer, and we are. And maybe you'll say, okay, that's my perspective. I'm Jewish biased. But let's look at this from a secular perspective. From a non-biased perspective, let's look from a historical perspective. 
And I'll share with you a reading or two from secular historians just to put a perspective on this. Let me read to you something called The Jewish Dispersion by a fellow named Lezinski. And these are his words. For 1900 years, from the destruction of the temple to the establishment of the modern state of Israel, the Jewish people have wandered literally around the world. This wandering was usually precipitated by intolerable spiritual and or physical persecutions. The scope of the Jews' 1900-year exile is reflected in the lands from which they were en masse expelled. And Elijinsky is going to do us the favor of listing for us the countries from which we were expelled. For example, in the 3rd century, they're expelled from Carthage, North Africa. 5th century from Alexandria, Egypt. 6th from provinces in France. In the 7th from the Viscothic Empire. In the 9th century, they're expelled from Italy. In the 11th from Mainz, Germany. In the 12th from France. 14th from France, Switzerland, Hungary, Germany. In the 15th from Austria, Spain, Lithuania, Portugal, Germany. In the 16th and 17th century, they're expelled from Bohemia, Austria, Papal States, Netherlands, Ukraine, Lithuania, Iran. It reads like a world atlas. And as a matter of fact, I'd like to give you a little exercise. If you'd like to study Jewish history, I have a very simple exercise. On a nice sunny day, go to the United Nations building and see all the flags furling in the wind. And I give you a challenge. Find me a flag of a country that didn't expel us, didn't annihilate us. And the only flag you'll find either didn't exist when Jews were there or there never were Jews there. Because if there were Jews living in that land, know well that they were expelled, murdered, persecuted, destroyed. And it's very difficult to find a country that didn't kick us out, didn't attempt to kill us. Yet, despite that, here's a very important observation. Have you met anyone lately from the Viscothic Empire? How about the Roman Empire or the Greek Syrian dynasties? Every one of those nations came and went and was still around. But let's look at another quote. Here's Leo, Leo Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy wrote an article, and the article is entitled, What is the Jew? And these are his words. What is the Jew? This is not as strange a question as it would first appear to be. Come, let us contemplate what kind of unique creature is this whom all the rulers and all the nations of the world have disgraced and crushed, expelled and destroyed, persecuted, burned, and drowned. And who, despite their anger and their fury, continues to live and flourish, what is this Jew whom they've never succeeded in enticing with all the enticements in the world, whose oppressors and persecutors only suggest that he deny his religion and cast aside the faith of his ancestor? The Jew is the symbol of eternity. He is the one for whom they were never able to destroy, neither bloodbath nor afflictions, neither fire nor the sword succeeded in annihilating him. He is the one who for so long has guarded the prophetic message and transmitted to all mankind. A people such as this can never disappear. The Jew is eternal. He is the embodiment of eternity. Now these are not the words of the Talmud. This is not some rabbi or some Jewish sage. These are the words of a secular historian studying this phenomena, these thousands of years of oppression, bloodshed, and despite it all, remaining unchanged. And if a person wishes to see God, all he need do is with an open eye study Jewish history. And you'll read this from thinkers, from historians, from people of all walks of life. There's a French author, John de Bildilia, during the later part of the 19th century, 
And these were his words. In essence, the Jewish people chuckled all forms of anti-Semitism. Think all you want, and you will not find one form of brutality or strategy that has not been used in warfare against the Jewish people. I cannot be defeated, says Judaism. All that you attempt to do to me has been attempted 3,200 years prior in Egypt, then tried the Babylonians and the Persians, afterwards tried the Romans and then others and others. There is no question that the Jew will outlive us all. This is an eternal people. Again, the words of a secular historian, an exalted and chosen people, the embodiment of eternity. And I'd like to share with you one more observation in this venue. I'll share with you the final words that Adolf Hitler spoke. It was actually in a radio address. He was in the bunker. It was 1945, and his end was imminent. And he made one last impassioned plea to his people, bequeathing them with this final message. Above all, I charge the leaders of the nation and those under them to scrupulous observance of the laws of race and to the merciless opposition to the universal poisoner of all peoples, international Jewry. The Third Reich was to last at least 1,000 years. It didn't last. And yet we are still around. We are still here. And Rabbi Yonason Eibschitz, one of the great Jewish thinkers, writes a powerful observation on this point. He says, Will the atheist not be embarrassed when he reflects on Jewish history? We in exile people scattered sheep from antiquity. After all that we've been brutally endured after thousands of years, there is no nation or people pursued as we. Many and powerful of those aspired to totally destroy us, but they never prevailed. How will the wise philosopher respond? Is this extraordinary phenomenon truly by chance? And when you study these facts and you read about them and you think about them, you reach the following conclusion. There is a God in the world guiding his people, protecting his people, always making sure that they remain. And I believe that's exactly what Rashi is saying when he explains that verse in the Bible. What Moses was saying in his address to his people was, study history. If you'll look at the events as they transpired, you'll see God's involvement in the world. A prophet will tell you what God will do. A history book tells you what God did. Just look at the strange events. Look at these things as they unfold, and you'll see the blueprint. You'll see God's hand. You'll see God protecting his people. And if you study history, you will see God. And I believe that anything that we could say about Jewish history in general pales in comparison to a phenomena that we have experienced in much more recent times. If you look at one simple fact, for almost 2,000 years, the Jewish people were scattered from country to country, continent to continent, and then somehow it is that this people landed back in our land, in the land of Israel. But if you study just a bit of the history of Israel, you'll find something very, very strange. Mark Twain visited what was then called Palestine in the 1880s, and his description of it was an austere, barren wasteland. It was absolutely barren. There was nothing Jaffa was a small port city, but you couldn't call it a city. Some shacks, some huts, 
some docks built out. Tel Aviv, that beautiful, beautiful city, didn't exist. It was some sand dunes. That was all that was there. And if you look at the fact that now, 60, 70 years later, 80 years later at maximum, you see a powerful nation, cities, as developed as any city in Europe or the United States, with industry, with commerce, with such technological advancements, with such an infrastructure, and you can say that it's nothing short of miraculous. You cannot take a desert area and build it into a modern city. You cannot take a wasteland and rebuild it. But the strangest part is that the Jewish people back in their land after 1900 years, and let's remember for a moment the following. We were not exactly welcomed back into our homeland. My father was born in Germany. My father spent the years of the war, World War II, in England, and he was in America in 1948. And when he heard the words that the Jewish state was declared, and he heard the next day that the Arabs declared war, he described to me that everyone that he knew, it was common wisdom that there was going to be another massacre. 1945 was the end of the Holocaust, and this was three years later, Everyone, everyone knew what was going to happen. You have to understand there were 650,000 Jews living in Israel, surrounded by 50 million Arabs. And in one fell swoop, and one day, every surrounding nation attacked. Aza Pasha, the Secretary General of the Arab League, on the airwaves proclaimed, this will be a war of ex- extermination and a monumentous massacre. But to put this into perspective, Let's focus on the odds of success. Paul Johnson wrote a fantastic book called A History of the Jews. And he describes as follows. On May 14, 1948, the state of Israel was declared. The next day, five modern mechanized armies attacked, each one sizably larger than the small band of Holocaust survivors defending Israel. And then he goes on to tell us the entire armament, the entire weapons of Israel. Entire armament of the Israeli forces consisted of 17,600 rifles, 2,700 Sten guns, 1,000 machine guns, and 45,000 soldiers. The land ratio of Israel to its surrounding Arab neighbors was 640 to 1. We were so outmanned, so outnumbered, attacked on every side, but that's not the strangest part. Keep in mind, until that day when the state of Israel was declared, Palestine was ruled by the British. No one contained the Egyptians in terms of their armaments, their armies, their navies, their air force. No one would stop the Syrians. But a Jew was not allowed to own a gun in Palestine. Until May 14, 1948, if a Jew was found with a gun, he was arrested immediately by the British, meaning to say there was no army, there was no navy, there were no drills. There were some secret cells, the Haganah and the Irgun had some secret cells that they would gather while no one saw. But you cannot create an army, a navy, an air force in one day. On May 14, 1948, the state of Israel was declared, and the very next day, modern armies of their time attacked on every side. And by all rights, there should have been a complete annihilation. Any intelligent assessment of the situation would have said it's impossible. Each single nation alone should have been able to destroy the few Israeli 
soldiers that were there, surely the combined forces of five against it? Now, just to put things in totally perspective so we understand things, I read a book when I was a boy. It was called The Birth of the Israeli Air Force. And it was a very interesting story because the birth of the Israeli Air Force consisted of two Piper Cubs. Now, if you've ever seen a Piper Cub, a Piper Cub is basically a kind of like a go-kart with a propeller in the front of it. It's a rickety one-seater plane. There was no Air Force because obviously Jews couldn't own planes because that was, uh, you know, illegal. There were a few hobbyists. So the two Piper planes, which belonged to pilots who were hobbyists, became the Israeli Air Force. But here's what they did. The pilot would sit in the seat. Behind him, they would put a case of grenades. The pilot would go up. He would fly low with one hand, pull the pin, drop the grenades, and that's how he would drop grenades on the Egyptian forces, and that was the uh, birth of the Israeli Air Force. In any case, there was a cute story that the pilot goes up on one run, drops the grenades, and he drops them on the Egyptians one by one by one. They try to shoot him, they can't. He comes back for another run, they load up the grenades again. He goes up, he comes back for a third run, he goes out, he comes back the fourth time, and he says, fill it up, let's go, i got to get back out there. There were no grenades left. They didn't have grenades. So he said to the fellows there, okay, listen, <clears throat> get me soda bottles. Quick, run, get me a case of soda, soda bottles. <clears throat> he demanded they do it. They burned a case of soda bottles. He flew <clears throat> very low right behind the Egyptian line. He dropped the soda bottles. They pop, made a loud noise on explosion. <clears throat> the Egyptians heard the noise. They ran. A cute story. But you can't win wars with soda bottles. But here's one more just to keep things in perspective. Beit Eshel was a small kibbutz about two miles outside of Beersheva. Near it in the Negev was a well-equipped army base. And the kibbutz people understood that if war were declared, they would be obviously the first stop that this Egyptian army base would pick. Well, anyway, war was declared, and immediately they were surrounded by a full armament of infantry, jeeps, tanks. They were completely surrounded. Now, obviously... And the kibbutz had put sandbags to defend themselves, and they fought through. They waited first for the artillery barrage, then 800 infantry attacked, and it was a bitter, bitter battle that went on for quite a while. In any case, the Egyptians did not conquer, did not take over that kibbutz. And the kibbutz fighters fought them off, and after the war, there was an amazing discovery that was made. At the time of the attack, the entire arsenal of the kibbutz consisted of 12 rifles, and two machine guns. Now, fantasies aside, in the real world, you don't win wars with soda bottles. Two rifles and 12 machine guns, you can't fight off entire garrison of Egyptian infantry and artillery. In the real world, the mighty army wins, the weaker is subsumed, and by all rights and all standards, Israel should have been wiped off the map almost immediately. But it wasn't. But even stranger, over the next 40 years, the Arab states spent more than three times the amount of money on military weapons than Israel did. Keep in mind that this was during the Cold War. The USSR was backing the Arab legions, backing the Egyptians, backing Syrians. As a matter of fact, at certain points, it was very dangerous to get into a dog fight in the air with Syrian planes because it might be flown by a Soviet pilot. The amount of money, effort, training 
that went into supplying the Arabs is astonishing. And from 1948 to 1973, a span of 25 years, the Arab nations declared war four times on this puny, understaffed country, and not one victory, surrounding them on every side, simultaneously attacking, and they can't crush the darn thing. The darn thing was about the size of the state of New Jersey, surrounded by millions and millions of Arabs. And don't make the mistake to think, well, the Egyptians are these hashish-smoking primitives. They were crack soldiers trained originally by the British, then later trained by the Soviet. And when you begin reading these events, you get a very different perspective. Let me share with you an article that appeared in Ma'ariv, which is an Israeli newspaper, a very secular Israeli newspaper. It's April 17, 1983, quite a number of years after the formation of the state and obviously after the Six-Day War. And this was what the editorial said. Is this how things really happened? Just as we're told in the history books, that some 650,000 Jews escaped the horrors of the Second World War and then the cruel struggle with the oppressive British did they really build up this whole infantry on their own efforts? Did they really create this nation state from emptiness and desolation? <clears throat> Is it possible that they stood in bitter warfare against the organized armies of five Arab countries, a mere 5% of the Jewish people? And not only did they strike a blow against every enemy that stood against them, <clears throat> but they then absorbed hundreds of thousands of refugees from the remnants of European and Middle Eastern Jewry? By all logic and all human reason, everything that happened in 1948 is in the category of the impossible. It was impossible with the limited arms that the Jews possessed, with the rudimentary international support that they managed to gather, with the limited resources that were available to them to do all they did. To bring a system of public services into operation from nothing, to establish a military industry from its beginning, to sustain supplies and minimal services, without any lines delineated because they were attacked on every side with no expert commanders to lead its battalions. These words were written by an Israeli secular Jew looking back a few decades later in wonder, in astonishment, how could it be? And when you look back on the events of world history, and you study 1,900 years of exile, of oppression, and yet of every nation, this one alone remaining. And then you study our entering into our land, and against all odds, building it up, and against all oppression <clears throat> remaining there, and against powerful enemies. And even now, <clears throat> with such forces against it, you begin <clears throat> to realize something is going on. And I'll share with you one more step. There's another strange phenomena. Not only have the Jewish people continued to exist, they continue to keep their ways. Let me explain what I mean. If you go parts of northeastern United States, parts of southwestern United States, you'll find many, many counties, many towns named after Indians. Mawa, Muncie, various areas, Pomona, the Indians, North American Indians, were native to this land. And when the Western Europeans came over in the 1500s, the 1600s, the pilgrims came, there were millions of Native American Indians living in this land. 
And they had their ways of life, their headdress and their teepees. They had their culture. I challenge you to find me today an Indian walking around with headdress and moccasins and deerskin coat. I challenge you today to find me an Indian keeping the ways of his ancestors. And if you'll find me on the reservation, Indians, they wear Western clothing, speak English, and have almost no connection to their culture other than the fact that they're living tax-free on a reservation granted to their great-great-grandparents. Yet I will find you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews who keep the ways of their fathers exactly without change. I will go in every country, in almost every city, and I'll find you a Jew who wears tefillin. Tefillin with the exact type of setup as his great-great-grandfather did. Four compartments, each one with a handwritten parchment, each one with the same words of the Torah. But internationally, country to country, and they all wear it every day. I'll find you Jews wearing tzitzits, each one on a four-cornered garment, eight strings, four sets of double knots, exactly as delineated in the Bible and explained in the Talmud. But it's internationally, across the globe, you'll find Jews learning, keeping, doing exactly what their forefathers have done. And oddly enough, you'll find study halls filled with hundreds, often thousands of Jews studying the very same Talmud, the very same scriptures as their fathers, grandfathers, great-great-great-grandfathers did before them. And when you see a nation keeping its ways, keeping its customs, keeping exactly to the same standards, whether it's Shabbos, it's kosher, it's all of the laws, you're watching something phenomenal. Because thrown from country to country, exile to exile, they remain loyal to the Torah, they remain loyal to their ways, and what you're looking at is a phenomena that's inexplicable. Every nation, when exiled from their land, <coughs> assimilates, intermarries, and within a generation or two or three at most, they're gone, assimilated into the culture. The reason why you can't find North American Indians today is because they marry. <coughs> they marry in, they marry out, and before you know it, three generations later, they're mixed into the population of the rest of the a country, and they become part of that indigenous people, and they're no longer distinct, they no longer keep their ways. But the Jewish people is unique, still keeping the ways of their fathers, still observing the Torah scrupulously with tremendous integrity. And if you'd like to see something miraculous, that is a miracle. Not long ago, I took my son to a Siam Hashas, the Talmud is studied by many people in what's known as the Dafayomi, the folio a day. If you study a folio, a two-sided page each day, in the course of a little more than seven years, you'll complete the entire Talmud. And there is very much accepted now a certain pace when many, many people study the same folio at the same time. And a page a day, double-sided page a day, each day, every day, every day. And when the Talmud is completed every seven years plus, there's a celebration because it is a major accomplishment. If you've studied that much Talmud, it's certainly a major, major event, and they have celebrations. In any case, I recently took my son to such a celebration. But here's the interesting part. 
there were not a hundred Jews in the room. There wasn't a hundred Jews who studied this text in Aramaic and Hebrew, who learned it for seven years straight. There weren't even a thousand. There weren't even ten thousand. They rented out Met Life Stadium, and there were 90,000 Jews in attendance. 90,000 Jews in attendance to this monumentous occasion of a people keeping its ways, <clears throat> staying true. And what we see in our own times is something that's extraordinary. To watch a people that still exists, <clears throat> despite every travail, every tribulation, despite every nation standing over it, the ancient Egyptians and then the Persians and then the Babylonians, every nation has its moment in the, in the stars, has its moment where it's powerful. In its height, it rises against the Jews and then it disappears. And then another one comes, another one comes, and the only nation that remains is that one hated, persecuted, oppressed, small little people, tiny and scattered, from country to country, continent to continent, and yet it is still around. And even in modern times, where there are diabolical means that have been attempted and are now being attempted with great, great vigor, this nation still astonishingly remains. And not only does it remain, somehow it is that after 1,900 years of going from shores to shore, it reoccupies its land, a land that was totally barren, that was absolutely non-inhabitable, and builds it up to be the most powerful nation in the region. The David is now the Goliath. And not only has it built it up, but at this very moment that we speak, it's still surrounded by now 100 million Arabs or more who still threaten its very existence, and yet it remains. And when you study a people who keep its ways, who keep the Torah, who keep the same mitzvahs in the same way, you're watching something miraculous. You're watching God keeping His people, His beloved people, His chosen people, and bringing them along, and you're witnessing God keeping things as they're supposed to be. And if a person wants to see God and he says, where is God? Study Jewish history. And I'd like to close with one last thought. It's actually a story. The story began on an army base in Berlin in 1974 with a Jewish chaplain, Rabbi Wade. <clears throat> Rabbi Wade was a <clears throat> chaplain who had befriended a Jewish-American officer named Stuart. Now, <clears throat> Stuart didn't strike Rabbi Wade as being a particularly religious person, so <clears throat> when Rabbi Wade saw Stuart wearing a yarmulke, he asked <clears throat> Stuart what was the meaning of it. And Stuart told the rabbi how he came to start wearing a yarmulke. He explained that he had been enrolled in West Point, and as part of the first year of studies, the cadets were enrolled in a course called the History of Military Tactics and Field Strategies. The course was taught by a three-star lieutenant general with a Ph.D. in military strategy, and the course surveyed all the major battles in history. That means it went from the Romans through the Middle Ages and down to the latest battles in the modern era. It was a major survey of historical warfare. In any case, during the final two weeks of the course, they were reviewing all the material. Cadet Stewart explains that he raised his hand with a question. He said, General, why is it that we didn't survey any of the battles fought by the Jews, either the ancient times, meaning the Roman-Jewish wars, or the modern times, the Arab-Israeli wars? 
And then Stuart explained that the normally friendly general snapped and said, Soldier, I'll see you in my office after class. And Stuart didn't know what to say, but he walked into the general's office after class. And the general closed the door, locked it, said, Sit down. And the general sat across from Stuart and said as follows, Do not think that the staff here at West Point has left the Jewish wars unnoticed. We have examined and analyzed them, and we do not teach them at West Point. Because according to military strategy and textbook tactics, the Jews should have lost them. You should have been swept into the dustbin of history long ago, but you were not. You won those wars against all odds and against all military strategies and logic. And then the general went on. He said, this past year we hired a new junior professor. And during a private staff meeting and discussion, the Arab-Israeli wars came under discussion. And we puzzled as to how you won those wars. Suddenly, his junior instructor chirped up and jokingly said, Honorable gentlemen, it seems to be quite obvious how they're winning their wars. God is winning their wars. But nobody laughed. The reason is, soldier, it seems to be an unwritten rule around here at West Point that God is winning your wars, but God does not fit into military, military textbooks. You are dismissed. And Stuart told Rabbi Wade, I never felt so small in my life. I come to West Point to learn about the greatness of my God from a three-star Presbyterian general, non-practicing Presbyterian. Stuart said, I went back to my barracks and found that flap of cloth that I wore on the high holidays, put it on my head, and it has remained there since. And when you study history, recent history, ancient history, when you study this phenomenon of the Jewish people's existence, they're thriving, they're reaching the height of any country they reach in, and then they're being thrown out and being oppressed, and you see them still around, and you see them finally landing in their land, remaining true to the Torah, remaining true to their ways, you see God, you see the eternity of the Jewish people. Just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.